Good morning. As Michael said, today's reading will be from the book of Amos, uh, chapter 5. If you want to find that on page 920, I'll give you guys a couple of seconds to find that. Page 920 in the Blue Bibles. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred, a thousand left, sorry. A city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Bathsheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench him. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold. He brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detests the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your your offences and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes, and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. Just as he says he is, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. They'll be wailing in the vineyards. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. We're in Amos chapter 5, page 920 in the Turquoise Church Bibles. And would love to invite you to turn to that, please. And as you do so, I'm going to read the... Uh, The end of the chapter from verses 18 to 27 of Amos 5. So let's hear God's word together. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. 
Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Let's pray. Dear Lord, please speak, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake. Amen. As a child, I vividly remember playing dressing up church. I put on my favourite tie, uh, sometimes my father's tie I would pinch. Uh, my teddies would all be lined up in a row, each given their own hymn book to sing from. Action Man would be the deacon, uh, wearing the miniature suit that my grandmother had uh, made for him. And my sister's Cindy would play the organ, otherwise known as the cassette tape playing Christian hymns music. And uh, I'd even joyfully officiate at our play communion service with orange juice and rich tea biscuits for those gathered together. And uh, apparently it wasn't just me. When Sally and I got together, I found out that she'd done very similar things and charged people to come to her afternoon service. <laughs> so, uh, now, I don't know, any of else play dressing up church as kids? Maybe a few, a few shakes of the head, a few nods of the head as well. Yeah, I thought so. And I'd like to think times had changed. Um, but you know, Action Man may well be in the cupboards and we're far too mature to mimic communion. But it's incredibly easy to play dressing up church today. The attitude of putting on our Sunday best, looking the part, acting presentable, being very serious at the right time, standing and sitting, being devoted on a Sunday for the hour and 15 minutes, dressing up church. But our heart is nowhere. Life outside the church theatre is spiritually nowhere. You peel back the veneer, you drop the mask, you'll find something very different inside. This morning, we are in the very centre of the book of Amos. And uh, the centre of the book of Amos is um, a challenging word from God to us. Now, let me just give you a bit of a recap on what we've seen thus far. The first couple of chapters, we heard oracles against the nations. A great tornado of God's judgment was sweeping around all the, the nations of the world, focusing in on Israel, the northern kingdom that the southern prophet Amos is speaking to. Then chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, we get three oracles. Chapter 3, an oracle against complacency, which lead to destruction. Uh, chapter 4, we get an oracle about repentance. Come back to God, come back to God. Without repentance, there's no salvation. And then today, we're looking at another oracle in chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. And then there's a different kind of oracle 
The second half of chapter 17, if you've got your Bible, it's really handy to have your Bible open, by the way, if you haven't got it open yet. Verses 18 to 27 and then chapter 6 are two different kinds of oracles. They're called woe oracles. You can see the start of each section starts with the phrase woe to you, woe to you. And uh, we're focusing our time, to be honest, this morning on verses 1 to 17 of chapter 5. And it's an amazingly crafted piece of writing. You know, in Bible times, they didn't have bold fonts or underline within the Hebrew. You couldn't identify focuses that way. You had to do it in a different kind of way. And uh, the way Bible writers wrote things in a different kind of way was how they structured the, the writing, a bit like poetry. And uh, the way chapter 5 is structured is amazing. It's what uh, Bible scholars called a chiasm. Now, if you know what a chiasm is, um, it's basically a fancy, posh way of saying a bacon double cheeseburger. That's really what a chiasm is. And we've got a bacon double cheeseburger on the screen just to kind of whet your appetites. And uh, the way a chiasm works, just like a bacon double cheeseburger, is you have, and if, if ever you want to bless my son Barney, that's his favourite burger from McDonald's, a bacon double cheeseburger on the screen. You have a bit of bread on the outside, and you come in, you've got a bit of cheese, and you come in, you've got a bit of lettuce, then... The real action, burger, burger, and in the middle, some bacon. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you 40 seconds on your own or with a friend nearby to have a look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. So really, if you don't have a Bible open, you're going to want it open now because you have got 40 seconds to find the bacon double cheeseburger in this passage. Okay, 40 seconds starting now. Okay, our time is nearly done, I'm afraid. I'll give you ten more seconds. Well, that is your time done, I'm afraid. If you're watching at home, by the way, on YouTube, you can pause the TV and have much longer. But um, we can't pause the service, I'm afraid, in the chapel, so we're going to press on. Let me explain it. Maybe see whether you spotted the bacon double cheeseburger, the chiasm, that is a very clever structure to focus our minds on what God wants to say to us from the passage. Okay, so verses 1 to 3 and verses 16 to 17, the outer part is the lament. That's a, that's a word for sadness. So you can see right at the start, hear this lament, fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted. It's devastation, verses 1 to 3, and then you get to the end at the bottom, and we read, there'll be wailing, this is verse 16, wailing in the streets, Weeping, wailing, devastation, lament at the top and at the bottom. Okay, so let's come in our chiasm. We're now into the cheese and we get this invitation to seek me, God says, or seek good and live. Can you see that in verses four to six? Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. And then jump down to verses 14 to 15. Can you see that again? Seek good and not evil that you may live. We're coming in. Let's go next. We're into the lettuce stage, which is 
Why, what's the challenge? Why is Israel fallen? Because of its sin. And specifically, there's injustice and there's oppression. So if you look down uh, in verse 7, you will see there are those who turn justice into bitterness, cuts righteousness to the ground. So that's, that's bad going on. And then jump down to verse 10, there are those, same phrase, who hate the one who upholds justice in the court. Similar kind of theme, injustice, oppression. Can you see we're working our way into the middle of the chiasm, the cheeseburger? Next then, we get to the meat. And here is the, the heart of the, the chapter. The heart of the chiasm is the most important bit. And it's all about God. He is the God who creates and who destroys. He made the Pleiades of Orion, verse 9. He's the indescribable God we've been singing about. And verse 9, we read, with a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold. So he can create, he can destroy. He is the mighty God. And who is his name? In the middle, the bacon. The Lord is his name. End of verse 8. So there we are. That's the kind, that's the structure of these verses. Amazing, isn't it? Like, I didn't come up with that. Amos, the Holy Spirit inspired Amos to come up with this really, really clear structure to focus our mind on what God wants to say to us today. What we're going to do now is we're going to work through that into four key lessons. And we'll try and apply it as we go. Okay? Here's our first lesson. Oh, in fact, the, the, the summary of the whole of it is injustice dressed as religion is deadly. So seek the Lord. That's the big summary of all of that chiasm, that, that chapter Injustice dressed as religion is deadly, so seek the Lord. So if you're going to remember one thing from today, remember that one sentence. And you can go now if you want to. You've got the cheeseburger, you've got the sentence. But we're going to spend another 20 minutes working it through line by line. Okay? Here's the first line of four. The solemn reality of death. First line, first point. Verses 1 to 3, verses 16 to 17, and verses 18 to 20. Now, last week we saw if you don't come back to God, he will eventually come to you. And we saw God is a God of immense patience. Uh, and again and again, he demonstrates his patience to the people five times. He walks through all the things he has done, urging the people to come back. Come back to me. Come back to me. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't. And yet eventually, God's immense patience, he's got a very, very, very long fuse. It runs out. And in chapter 4, Amos didn't explain what it looks like when God's patience runs out. He does so in chapter 5. And let's listen to God's word. Verse 1. Hear this word, Israel. This lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. It's as if Amos is reading out Israel's own obituary. Israel is referred to as virgin Israel. Innocent Israel, pure Israel, a life ahead of her, you would think, but has been totally wasted because she is a dead nation. She's fallen. She may be living and breathing and walking around, but Amos is saying she's as good as dead. And he spells out what will happen. Verse 3, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. Your town that marched out a hundred strong will only have ten left. A tenth of the army, a tenth of the city will pull through the west. Completely wiped out, 90% gone. No wonder there is widespread grief. If 90% of Cardiff, of the whatever, 350,000 of us were here, 300,000 gone. Just 50,000 left, 30,000 left. 
There will be devastation. Well, what happens in, in verse 16? Look down in verse 16. The lament. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. So in the city, there's, there's devastation and grief. In the country, there is the same. Verse 16. The farmers will be summoned to weep. The mourners to wail. There'll be wailing in all the vineyards. And why will there be all this wailing going on? End of verse 17. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase. I will pass through your midst. Because if you were an Israelite or someone who knew the Bible, you would know all about God passing over your midst. God passing over your midst is what he did at the Exodus. He passed over the Israelites and passed through Egypt and judged Egypt. He passed over those who were rescued and safe, who hid under the, the, the blood on the door. I mean, not here. He's passing through, bringing judgment all the way through. Just as he judged Egypt, he's judging Israel here. The solemn reality of death cloaking the whole passage. And it cloaks verses 18 to 20 as well. Israel, you see, can't believe it's going to be so bad. You see, the history of Israel is a history of looking forward to a day. The day, the great day of the Lord when everything would be made right. And justice would finally come. And liberation would finally come to God's people. They held on to it. And yet, verse 18, Amos says, have a look down. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. You think vindication is coming when justice comes. But you be very careful that you're on the right side. Suddenly, you're holding out for justice. And justice comes, but you're on the wrong side. You thought you were going to be vindicated. You're sent down. You think you can run from death, consequence-free? What's happening? Verse 19. Very vivid writing. It will be as though a man fled from a lion. Phew. Only to meet a bear. Or as though he entered into his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. That is amazing. Amazing, isn't it? Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of blindness. That day, that final day, will be a day of judgment. A solemn reality of death, says Amos. Israel will fall. Judgment day will come. It's a matter of time. And that's the... that's true today, by the way, one day, the world that's opposed to Christ, the world that loves Christ, every one of us will face Christ on the judgment day, and those who turn their backs on him, judgment will come. And there'll be a devastating consequence. If we've turned our backs on Jesus, he'll turn his back on us. We'll be separated from him forevermore. It's just a matter of time. And that is a devastating Reality. I was thinking about this. It's a little bit like the opposite of Halloween. Halloween, you see children, partygoers, students, maybe running around town wearing pointed hats and white faces, looking like death on the outside. Inside, there's lots of joy and happiness and fun. It's a bit of a game for them. Actually, this is the opposite of that. Outside, looking alive, looking vibrant, religious, sound, sorted. Inside, death. Dead man walking, dead woman walking, dead child walking around. Dead in transgressions and sins, without God, without hope in the world. That's how Paul would describe it in Ephesians chapter 2. That's 8th century Israel, says Amos. 
We've got to come to terms with the solemn reality of death. That's our first point. What makes the lament the lament is really the second point. Because these people were dressed up with an outer appearance of religion. Outer appearance of religion. Dressed up church. When it came to religion, Israel looked the part. I don't know whether they had an action man as a deacon or played communion with orange juice and rich tea biscuits, but they certainly put on a very, very good church service. They loved it. Uh, They had special shrines and pilgrimages, we're told. In uh, verse 5, they they went to places like Bethel and Gilgal. We saw those last week. Great places in the history of Israel. Or Beersheba, another great place in the history of Israel. That's where Abraham settled, Isaac and Jacob uh, lived. Wonderful places in the history of God's people. And we're told in verses 21 to 24, we read those at the start, they had religious festivals, they had special meals and services and meetings and offerings and sacrifices, and they could sing their lungs out with the most amazing, rocking, acoustic worship band that you knew. And there they were, and if you could see on the outside, and you look through the window, you thought, there's a very, very good church. There's a very, very good gathering of believers who are going for it and are going through the motion. It's all very religious, all very smart looking. And it was just fake. Like a great big oak tree that looks so impressive. You go to the one massive tree standing there, you punch, it's completely hollow in the middle. It's all external, nothing internal, no vital life within it. Dressing up church. They'd grown used to the forms of worship. Forgotten the focus, the heartbeat of worship, that vibrant relationship with God. They had assumed that because they went through the motions, they had all the habits, they had all the rituals, they ate all the food in the right kind of way, the music, oh my goodness, it was amazing music. Heart music and how marvellous it was and God had been forgotten. Completely forgotten. Monday to Saturday, they looked exactly the same as everyone else. And I'd... Love to say that's just then. But you know. Seriously, this is just today. The evangelical church, you can say it. We, can, you know, we might not have the kind of ritualistic high church traditions, the priests of some church denomination, but we have our way of doing things. We may not you know, do it in a certain way, but we have our kind of great authorities, our, our free church popes who we rely on massively, who lead us and you know, we... The latest Tim Keller book, or Andrew Wilson, or Kevin DeYoung, we've got to get those books and read them, and they're the authority, or the worship leaders, whether it's Stuart Townend, or Phil Wickham, and we've got to love their music and listen to them, and maybe we go on a pilgrimage off to Aberystwyth, to the conference each year, and get our spiritual high, or to Prestatin for Word Alive, or for Soul Song, or whatever it may be, and they'll leave you on a spiritual high, and very often those things can be good for us, sure, but if we rely on them, We rely on going through the motions. Yeah, I do camps every year. I'm a very, very religious person. Useful for focusing on God. But if we're not careful, we trust in the systems, the rituals, hollow inside. If we're not careful, it's dressing up church. It's play church. And the one thing worse than playing dressing up church is not knowing you're playing dressing up church. You're just used to the rhythms of how you do life and how you do church. It's just so easy. And you look so keen and enthusiastic on the outside. You say the right thing and you look the right part. 
It's all external, outer appearance of religion. And the reason we know it was is because underneath those dressing up clothes there's something very dark inside. And we'll see that in our next point, point three, an inner shame of injustice. An inner reality of injustice. And it's a shame. It's verses 7, 10 to 13, and verse 24. We're working our way into the middle of Amos's chiasm. So look down at verse 7. You, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. The reason Israel will fall to the ground is because that's where they've thrown righteousness. It's been trampled on the ground. And this exposure carries on in verse 10. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. Exploiting people, using positions of power for their own ends. How damning that is. But like the way we may have seen in the last month or so, the, uh, the expose in the Metropolitan Police. So many police officers have used their positions of power who should have carried out justice rightly to exploit other people. Hundreds, maybe thousands of women under their care. But these heart attitudes turn to cruel actions. Have a look down in verse 11. We'll see. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. The reason they're poor is because they're paying incredibly extortionately high loans and taxes, sending the peasant farmers into bankruptcy. Now, the Old Testament law made it very clear. You couldn't put a loan or put tax on a loan. That was kind of usury. You weren't allowed to charge interest on a loan uh, to someone who was poor, but God knows he sees it. You may think you can get away with it. Maybe the poor people have no voice to push back. But you'll answer to God. One day, you take advantage of other people for your gain at their expense. You'll answer to God. Have a look down. You're not going to enjoy it, what you've gained. Therefore, this is verse 11. Though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Abusing the poor, denying justice, just to get a few more pounds, taking advantage, abusing your position of power that you have. This is the inner reality, the shame of injustice going on within the church community. And so widespread is it that Amos adds that the prudent person, in verse 13, keep quiet in such times, just keep their head down. There's no way to leverage accountability in that space. If you're wise, you just keep it out of the way. Just let evil run its course. So much for the golden age of Jeroboam II. He was the king around 760s BC. It was a golden age, but the gold was just gold-plated. Underneath the veneer was the darkest of ages. Spiritually barren times. And well might the Lord call out in verse 24... In words made famous by Martin Luther King in his famous speech. Let justice roll down like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Now how do we apply these words to us? Because that's the key thing. When every study of the Bible, how does it apply to you and to me? Do we, these charges of social injustice, is this just a Bible issue? An Old Testament issue? A time when God was concerned with the political destiny of a nation? Uh, Today, of course, he's not really concerned about nations. He's concerned about his people, the church, which is a multinational gathering, as we can see around us, of people from every nation. 
Does the coming of Christ mean that God is more concerned about spiritual matters than societal matters and issues of justice? Tricky question. I think the answer is yes and no, actually. It's a bit of both, really. Uh, On the one hand, yes, of course, things have changed. We saw, and we've seen a number of times, that we have to look at Amos back through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Things are different now. They are. The old covenant, physical nation of Israel, who were held to account, fundamentally, that points forward to the new covenant, people of God, the church, that uh, has been purchased by Jesus' blood, and is dying and is rising again. But, on the other hand, Does that mean every societal, social implication of the gospel is consumed by the coming of Christ? And uh, we can just live as we like now. I think the answer to that is no. I don't think it does mean that. The fact is Jesus Christ is King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords and he rules and therefore he has a say over and an interest in every single area of our lives. The famous um, Dutch Prime Minister Abraham Kuyper said there's not a square inch of... This world over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, does not claim mine. And he wants every area to be under his rule. And that rule extends to the marginalised and the outcast and the poor. And the fact is there are loads of New Testament scriptures that speak into this for us. We might think of Jesus' famous teaching that um, we're to love our neighbour as ourselves. What a very famous, simple thing, but so hard to do. To love your neighbour, whoever they are, like you love yourself. Who is my neighbour? Well, remember the the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Anyone we see in need is our neighbour, says Jesus there. Or we might think of what James says in uh, James chapter 1, that true religion is that which concerns itself with the vulnerable, the poor, the widows, the orphans in their distress. So I guess I want to ask the question, given these New Testament commands, is there an inner reality of injustice within you? Or within me, whether individually, or perhaps more pertinently, within us as a congregation, a church family. I have been reading Tim Chester's book, Good News for the Poor, as I've been preparing this. I think it's an excellent book. If you've not read it, a fantastic book. And it may be that you think, oh, I, I, I couldn't take advantage of the poor. Like, I'm poor myself. And the fact is that with rising prices and, and the crisis in a... In uh, energy, you may think, oh, actually, I've got nothing to contribute. I couldn't help anyone else. I need help, thank you very much. Let me just say to you, by the way, if you're on, maybe you're on a minimum wage, or live, national living wage, £10, whatever, 15 if you're on that, and you get that for a year, so £20,000 a year, if you earn £20,000 a year, it may not seem very much money, you would be in the richest 5% of the world's population if you got a minimum wage in the UK. We are all staggeringly wealthy compared with the global poor. And it's so easy just to kind of turn our eyes away from needs of other people around the world. In Tim Chester's book, he asks some very pointed questions about uh, what it means for a church to love their neighbour rather than to fall down this inner reality of injustice. And there are lots of different ways that we can do it as individuals and different ways we might do it as a church. Uh, as individuals, we can respond to a society's needs by getting involved in lots of the different ministries. Even here in Cardiff, there are loads of different ways to serve uh, God and help those who are in need. Maybe you might want to support the Red, uh, the Red Community Ministry that Di Hankey and his uh, team uh, support modern-day slavery in. 
Or you might want to help down at the Rainbow of Hope, seeking to support uh, asylum seekers as they come in and are desperately in need. Um, maybe our uh, CAP ministry that we've uh, started, Christians Against Poverty, that our church and a number of other churches have done. If you're concerned about getting involved in any of these areas, why not have a word with uh, our Compassions Ministry team? Uh, you may want to have a word with uh, Darren Waters um, or uh, myself or Rowena um, Criddle, who uh, serves here at the church. We'd love to point you in that direction. I have to say that that's kind of individual ways of serving, but one of the things that Tim Chester in his book says is how, as churches, we might be greater in terms of concern for those who are in need and not fall into this inner reality of injustice. And this is what he suggests the gathered church can do. Let me quote to you. He says, poverty is about marginalisation, vulnerability, isolation and exclusion. The most important thing that the church can do for the poor is to be the church to be a place where people find welcome and belonging. And I think there are massive challenges there. You know, are we the kind of church where people, whatever their background, however outside they may feel or seem, can feel welcome and love and home? That's what we have on all our posters around the church. Welcome home. We want people to come to church and to feel like they're coming home. A place of safety and a place of love. A friend of mine was uh, serving a summer mission team with Tim Chester in, his ch- in Tim Chester's church. And Tim Chester, to train the, the summer team li- uh, members, uh, invited all the team members to, to spend one Saturday afternoon going into a bookmaker's. You think, like, why on earth would you send someone into a bookmaker's? And the reason he sent them in was because um, he wanted to help someone to experience what it's like to go into a place where they felt totally alien and had no idea what was going on. Uh, Because I guess very few of us go into bookmakers regularly, but many people do, even uh, today in our city. And this is what a number of people reported back. Let me quote that. Some people said it felt completely alien to them. They hadn't a clue what was going on. They felt very awkward, nervous, on edge. People were looking at them in a strange way. One person reported, I wanted to get in and get out as soon as I possibly could. And then another person, very strikingly, I, I think, said, quotes, no one talked to me, and I was glad about that. I wonder how someone who has never been into a church building would feel coming into Highfields. No one talked to me and I was glad about that. Or would we welcome them and not kind of reinforce their sense of marginalisation by the way we, in our external religious ways, can make them feel not one of us. Friends, it would be good to pray for the ministries we're seeking to support. Christians Against Poverty or Rainbow of Hope or Red Community. Do pray for them. Maybe consider becoming a befriender, because there's lots of areas to serve and need in that particular space. Well, we have spent lots of time on that third point, but I think it's important, because uh, Amos wants to challenge this church, the inner reality. Outside, it looked impressive. Inside, it was pure injustice. Hollow tree within. But that brings us to our fourth point, because, praise God, judgment is not the only outcome. And that's where we get to with our last point. What I'm calling a gracious offer of life. And this is in verses 4 to 6 and verses 14 to 15. So if you're taking notes, there are the passages you want to write down. How does the Lord deal with a church that plays dressing up church? How does God deal with those who put on religion on the outside, but inside it's basically a hollow tree? Does he consign them to the scrap heap? Remarkably, he looks towards them and invites them to be saved. Have a look at these amazing verses in verse verse 4 and 6. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me 
and live. Do not go to Gilgal, don't journey to Beersheba, Gilgal will surely go to exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Get rid of your religious shrines, your lucky charms is what Amos is saying. You're trusting in Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba, running to those places for rescue is a bit like uh, someone who's in desperate need of um, uh, medical care clinging to a signpost pointing to UHW, the hospital. Just hold on to the signpost. Help me, help me, help The signpost isn't going to help you. They're pointing you to the place where you need help. You need rescue there. Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba at their best for signpost pointing to the God of rescue, the God of salvation, who says, seek me. Not those things. Seek the Lord and live, he says. A mighty tsunami of judgment is about to blow through and sweep through your injustice, your dressed up religion. And the only place of rescue is me, says God. Don't look for forgiveness from a church. Don't look for absolution from a minister. Don't even look for affirmation for a friend. So often we can feel bad and we want someone else to make us feel a bit better. So we go to a friend and say, is it that bad? And they probably say, no, it's not that bad. And they kind of make me feel a bit better. And that's how I'm looking for salvation. They're not going to save you. They should point you to God. The one who can bring salvation and can forgive you in a moment. And that applies, friends, the first time you ever turn and put your trust in Jesus, if you haven't done it yet urge you to do it. It's the best thing you could possibly do. And it also applies the hundredth time you trust in Jesus. I remember uh, wrestling with this. I I used to think as a child, a a bit like when when Johnny was speaking, I was thinking to myself, when did I become a Christian? Did I pray the prayer in the right way? Have I prayed, have I repented the right way? And actually I realised several years later, to be a Christian is to repent and believe the gospel every day. And that's something that Martin Luther, the great uh, German reformer, said. Every single day we repent and believe the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian, regardless of when you first did it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Or to use the language of Amos chapter 5.14, Seek good, not evil. Look down, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. You say he is with your external religion, with your forms. Well, make it real. May may that be genuinely true. Come back to him. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of uh, of Joseph. That last line is so poignant. Perhaps the Lord will do it. Salvation is of the Lord. He, He might not save you. But if you call on his name, he loves to save He loves to save. He he will answer your prayers. But it's his prerogative, not yours. Don't leave it till tomorrow. (laughs) Don't leave it till you're in the mood. If you tarry till you're better, you may never come at all. You come back in repentance today, right now. Today is a day of salvation. God's calling us. Don't go a day longer without closing the deal. Maybe you're thinking, I haven't done it yet. Come back today. And at the end of the service, I'm going to pray and invite you to come back to God today. Don't walk away carelessly from this offer. It's a bit like an offer to tea at Buckingham Palace. If you've got a letter with the new uh, King Charles's crest on the top inviting you to tea at the palace, you're going to think very seriously about Respond to this. You've been invited to seek God, to come back to God today. 
Amos is being summoned, uh, is that, is, uh, summoning the people of Israel to come back to the one who turns the world on its axis. And right in the middle of this uh, chiasm, just as we close, we will see, look, let's remind ourselves of the God we're talking about. He who made, this is verse 8, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them over the face of the earth. He's the mighty creator. Jump down to verse 9. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. He's the mighty destroyer. Do you want to meet him? At the centre of the oracle, right in the middle of the chiasm, right in the middle of the whole of the book of Amos. Who is he? The Lord is his name. There it is. The gracious and compassionate God. Lord in capital letters tells us he's that kind of God. The God who makes promises and he keeps his promises. He revealed himself at the Exodus. He's a God of absolute justice, yes, but unbelievable mercy. Unbelievable mercy, the Lord is his name. And he's the God who came into our world, the world of poverty and injustice and hypocrisy and injustice dressed as religion that looks so good and injustice dressed as religion put him to a cross. And then he rose again from the dead three days later. The Lord Jesus Christ is his name. Friends, the only way people facing the solemn reality of death who've gotten out of veneer of religion and an appearance that looks so good inside it's hollow, the reality of injustice is right there. Their only hope is not in clinging to church, clinging to my, the words I say, the hymns I sing, the tears I cry, it's clinging to him. He alone is my righteousness, my salvation. He alone offers us, seek me and live. When you do so, when you come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden are fed up of hypocrisy and of pretending to love him on a Sunday. He's completely left behind when the Bible gets closed Monday to Saturday. Come back to him and live your life. Give your life to him. And he'll never cast you away. And instead, he'll give you rest. Let's have a moment of quietness and then we'll pray. Gracious God, we come before you. We've heard your voice. The line of the tribe of Judah has roared and again we find it deeply challenging to hear and to say, Lord, forgive our hypocrisy that looks good but is hollow inside. Forgive it. Lord, we want to be done with it. We want to be rid of it. Would your spirit fill us? Would your word dwell in us? Not just on a Sunday, not just in the externals, but in our hearts every day of the week. We come back to you afresh for grace, for forgiveness. And we thank you that you are God who delights to give it. We seek you and live today. And Lord, for those who've never turned and trusted, we pray, please, would you work in them, in their hearts, and help them to see that today is the day of salvation. And to come back to you while they can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.